Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Hey everyone, my name is Jacob, and we are here today with three distinguished Kennedy Center investigators. First up, we have Mark Wallace. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Jacob. Next up, we have Carissa Cassio. Hello. And finally, we have Tiffany Wynorowski. Hello. So before we get started with a conversation about our science, I'd first like to ask everyone what initially inspired you to do research with children with autism. Let's start with you, Mark. Oh, I think um, as... I started to learn a bit more about autism and found out that these children really have a number of differences in the way they process sensory information about the world. Um, It became an increasingly interesting question to me as a neuroscientist to learn a bit more about the nature of how they take in information about the world and how changes in how they take in information about the world really may relate to some of the more common clinical symptomology that we, we often talk about. I didn't know that about you, actually. Isn't that nice? It is. Uh, Next up, uh, let's uh, ask you the same question, Carissa. Sure. So I think my answer is pretty similar. Um, A curiosity about what the world inside a person with autism's mind looks like. For me, I can trace the interest back to a specific person, um, a a child that I used to babysit for, um, who had um, a lot of sensory behaviors and um, repetitive behaviors and uh, would be very happy to kind of just watch a spinning fan or some other kind of repetitive visual stimulus for a long time. And she was clearly getting something out of that that I couldn't really understand. So wanting to know more about that was part of my motivation. Very cool. And finally, Tiffany, what inspired you to do research with children with autism? Uh, I have a clinical background working with children with autism and other intellectual disabilities as a speech language pathologist and also as an early interventionist and a behavior consultant. And in the course of working with those children, I was really struck by how different they are from one another and how differently they responded to different approaches to intervention. Um, It seemed that no one really knew why children were so different from one another and, and why they did or did not respond to intervention, so I was particularly interested in those questions. I'm now also the parent of a handsome and brilliant young man on the autism spectrum, so that combination of personal and professional experiences led me to pursue an academic career. Well, I think it's interesting that all of you seem to have personal and professional things that have drawn you into this area, and this area specifically is sensory processing in autism, and I know that our work looks a lot at multisensory integration. So Mark, uh, what is multisensory integration? So everyone around the table will laugh when I say this because it's a common um, joke in the laboratory, but we live in a multisensory world, right? I would argue that we're constantly bombarded with information from a variety of different senses, vision, hearing, touch, taste, smell. Um, and collectively what multisensory integration is, is really how does the brain knit all that disparate information together. Um, We don't see the world as a vision piece here, an audition piece there, a tactile piece there. We see it all as this really unified perceptual reality. So multisensory integration is really trying to understand 
sort of how does that manifest at the perceptual level. But really, as a neuroscientist also, I'm very interested in what is the brain basis behind that? What are the areas of the brain that are really instrumental in how we combine information from the different senses and how that ultimately translates into profound differences in the way we both behave and behave towards and perceive the world around us. So what does sensory processing look like in uh, children with autism? Um, Children with autism may show a broad range of differences in the way that they process or respond to sensory information. Uh, They may show exaggerated responses, for example, being really bothered by loud sounds or bright lights or the textures of their clothes. That's probably the most salient difference in sensory responding for clinicians and parents. Uh, What's actually more common and more specific to children with autism, though, is a pattern of reduced or absent responding to different types of stimuli. For example, a child may not respond when their name is called or may not seem to notice the phones ringing in the room. Children with autism may also seek out or crave certain types of sensory stimulation. Examples of this would include doing things like looking at things very close up or from an odd perspective or smelling or licking or repeatedly rubbing things. These differences can be seen across all sensory modalities from sights and sounds to touch and different tastes um, or even smells or the sense of one's own body and space. But children with autism may also show differences in the way that they combine information across their different sensory modalities and that would be sensory integration. For example, they might have a hard time combining the sound of my voice with the movements of my mouth while I'm talking. And what do we know about multisensory integration in children with autism? It's a question for anyone. (laughs) Okay, I'll start. Um, So what we know, I mean, coming back to what Tiffany said, I think what we know is that children with autism do appear to combine, to bind information from the different senses differently than does a typically developing child. The focus of the work that we've done to date really has been on looking at that in the dimension of time. So we, when we take in information about the world, um, generally things that are associated with the same event um, are very strongly temporally correlated. And what that means is that they happen at about the same time. Um, And that becomes a really powerful cue for the brain to say, ah, those things they must belong together because they happened at about the same time. Um, some of our work has really delved into, is that um, temporal, multisensory temporal processing, time processing, is it different in children with autism? And the answer seems to be yes. They appear to bind or integrate information from different senses. In this case, what we've largely focused on is hearing and vision um, on a very different time scale. They appear to have a larger, what we call, temporal binding window, which means that for information that a typically developing child would treat as two separate events, a visual event and an auditory event, a child with autism may actually see those as the same event. At some level, um, this seems like an advantage, right? They're binding together more information. But if you start to think about um, some of the real world things that we do, like what we're doing right now, talking to one another, and looking at each other's lips move, um, when you start to realize that if there's too large of a window of time in which that visual information and auditory information is being knit together, 
that will result in profound confusions for the child. And we think this is really um, one of the core issues in autism that we found in um, the cohort of children that we've studied. So that was an excellent introduction to the research project we've all been working on for the Kennedy Center's Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center grant funded by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. The first aim of this grant looked at describing those multisensory differences in autism that you were just describing. And we were also interested in looking at how that linked with features of autism. So uh, Tiffany, uh, why don't you tell us what we've learned in that regard? How is multisensory integration related to the features we see in autism? Well, as you know, Jacob, in large part because you spearheaded this effort, uh, we kicked off this research project by systematically reviewing and quantitatively synthesizing all of the past studies that had been done um, exploring multisensory integration in individuals with autism. And this allowed us to draw several preliminary conclusions. One was that across all of those past studies, it appeared that individuals with autism did show differences in multisensory integration relative to those who did not have autism or any history of developmental concerns. Um, those differences had been seen across many types of stimuli, um, from very simple stimuli like flashes and beeps to more complex stimuli like auditory and visual speech, which we've talked about several times. Um, these differences seem to be most pronounced earlier in life in children versus in adults. Um, and although they had been seen across a broad range of stimuli, it was specifically the differences in processing those more complex and social multisensory speech stimuli that seemed to be linked with clinical symptoms of autism. Uh, based on those results, we drew on all of the Vanderbilt resources at our disposal to really develop the most comprehensive battery that's been used to assess multisensory integration in children with autism to date. So that battery included a number of neuroscientific measures of multisensory integration, as well as an extensive battery of clinical measures that we use to confirm children's diagnoses and characterize them. And the findings from that research basically are consistent with what we found from the meta-analysis. We are seeing that children with autism show differences in multisensory integration and that their challenges in integrating multisensory speech in particular seem to be associated with their symptoms of autism, like difficulties with social communication and related difficulties with things like language. Can I, can I add something in? Of course. I think, I mean, very much along the lines of what Tiffany said, but I think something... You know, if we take a step back even, I think it's a concept that the lab, all of us talk about, is that um, we're obviously interested in understanding the sensory function of these children because we think that's very important. It's a, probably 80 to 90 percent of families will talk about some degree of sensory change in their child. Um, but also, I think something to point out that's kind of referenced by what Tiffany just said is we also think that those changes in sensory function actually are really important in the changes that we're seeing in the higher order cognitive or clinical representation. So you've heard Tiffany talk a lot about, you know, social communication. And we think that changes in early sensory function may actually contribute to the patterns of social communication changes that we see in children with autism as well. So Tiffany, what might that look like for an infant with autism during the course of development? 
Well, I'm actually planning to plug this later, but we're currently extending all of this work down to infancy and prospectively following children who we know are at increased risk for autism because they happen to have an older sibling who is already diagnosed. And what we're most focused on is the earliest milestones for multisensory development. To what extent are babies, for example, looking at multisensory speech or looking at the mouth while someone's talking? And does that help us to predict something like their language and communication development? Interesting. Just a nice little divergence, I think. <laughs> One thing that Tiffany mentioned is that we do have a large neuroscientific battery assessing multisensory integration. We were very fortunate to have a diverse group of scientists working with us with expertise in multiple methods of neuroimaging. Carissa, could you please tell us what neuroimaging method you use to help us tackle this problem? Sure. Um, so we used a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. Um, and the way that fMRI works is to capitalize on uh, oxygenation in the blood and differences in uh, the magnetic properties of oxygenated versus deoxygenated blood. And so what that means is that when neurons are active, we know that they're using oxygen so we can infer active neurons in an indirect way by measuring this oxygenation-dependent signal in the MRI scanner. And how does that differ from MRIs that people might have gotten on, say, their knees or other areas of the body during medical tests? Ah, so in functional MRI, we are asking people to attend to a particular stimulus or perform a particular task while we're taking the images. So we're looking at the activity of the neurons indirectly uh, rather than looking at the structure alone of the, the tissue. And so what task were uh, participants doing when they were in the scanner? So we had them looking at audiovisual speech stimuli, and we had it in two conditions, where one in which the auditory and the visual parts of the stimulus were in sync, um, as we would normally experience them, and uh, another in which they were out of sync um, by almost half a second. So it was a pretty salient difference um, in, in the timing of the two signals. So what did we learn about multisensory integration from while kids were looking at these synchronous versus asynchronous videos? So we learned a couple of things. So focusing first on the synchronous speech, which is what we would normally be seeing, um, one of the regions of the brain that showed a distinct difference in that it was more active during um, for the typically developing comparison group than it was for the autism group is a region called the anterior insula. And this is an important region in what's called the salience network of the brain. So this is a part of the brain that is really engaged in figuring out what in your environment is important to pay attention to. And so for a lot of us, um, synchronous audiovisual speech is a pretty salient social stimulus. Um, and that was a really nice, uh, uh, I guess, quality check on the stimuli because they were these repetitive um, syllables that, you know, you might not necessarily assume would be very salient, but I think the brain's mechanisms um, for tuning into that kind of social information are very strong. So we saw more activation in the typically developing group in this brain region that is important for attending to salient events in the environment. So that's one thing we learned. 
Um, when we, okay, uh, when we looked at the asynchronous condition where the auditory and the visual parts of the speech were offset from each other, uh, we saw a number of interesting differences as well. Both groups showed responses in a region called the cerebellum, which is really important for interpreting timing of events in the environment. It's involved in motor control, so it needs to be really finely tuned to the, the timing of information. So that makes a lot of sense because they were probably trying to figure out what was going on with these mismatched auditory and visual cues in time. Um, what seemed to distinguish the two groups a little bit more is that in the autism group, the sensory regions of the brain were pretty much limited to the visual processing regions, whereas in the typically developing group, uh, there was much more response in regions of the brain that we know are important in integrating auditory and visual information. So these are regions like the superior temporal sulcus or the intraparietal sulcus, um, regions that are classically multisensory. So it seems that the, um, although gr both groups were probably noticing the timing differences, their strategies for trying to decode it may have differed, with the typically developing group relying on more classic multisensory strategies and potentially the autism group ignoring the auditory information in favor of just focusing on the visual, potentially. Well, I don't know about our audience, but I definitely learned something from that explanation. So thank you, Carissa. We also used a second neuroimaging technique on this project. Tiffany, what neuroimaging method did you use to help us tackle this topic on the project? Well, first, Jacob, I want to point out that much of the past research has been limited to only a subset of older and relatively higher functioning children with autism because the measures, things like the psychophysical computer games we've used and the fMRI task that Carissa was just talking about um, are somewhat demanding. They require the children to understand complex instructions and to attend and actively report their perception for a pretty extended period of time. So in order to explore the brain bases of multisensory integration in children with autism, um, we've also been using um, a less demanding task. That's electroencephalography, or EEG. Um, this method basically just allows us to directly measure how children's brains are processing information, like sensory stimuli, um, through brain waves or electrical signals that we can measure on their scalp while they're wearing a stretchy cap. So what did our participants do while they were wearing the net? While they were wearing the net, they simply looked at a computer screen and listened while they played a computer game. Specifically, we randomly presented the children with two different kinds of speech stimuli, as spoken by a woman who we had recorded in our laboratory. These stimuli were all syllables like ba. Half of the stimuli were auditory only, meaning that the children could only hear the speech, kind of like you can only hear our voices in this podcast. The other half of the speech stimuli were audiovisual, meaning that the children could hear the speech and also see the woman's face moving in sync. The children did not have to respond to these stimuli in any way, to keep them engaged in the task, though, we did try to make this a little more fun. Specifically, we told the children that the woman was searching for some alien friends who had run away and that she was calling for them in their alien language. Um, we explained that sometimes they could see her and hear her, but sometimes they could only hear her because she was far off in the galaxy. We told the kids that if they were very still and quiet, the aliens may appear. And this little trick actually really helped us to get a better measure of their brain waves. 
Um, we then made aliens randomly pop up on the screen to keep the children engaged during the task, and we allowed them to catch them by hitting a big red button. And what did we learn about multi-sensory integration through this uh, fun game that we all want to play now? <laughs> in this particular task, we were interested in a specific part of the brainwave that occurs in response to speech stimuli. It's called the P2, and it's basically a big wave that we can detect at the top of the child's head about 200 milliseconds after the onset of speech stimuli. We knew from past research that this big P2 wave tends to be smaller when typically developing children and adults have access to synchronous auditory and visual speech cues from the speaker's mouth than when they have access to only the auditory speech information, most likely because they can integrate this information easily and it helps their brains to process the speech more efficiently. We found that children with autism were really variable in how they responded to this EEG task. Some children did show smaller brain waves in response to the audiovisual speech stimuli, but some did not. And some children even showed the opposite pattern of what we were expecting to see, which seemed to suggest possibly reduced speech processing efficiency in the presence of these visual speech cues, which should facilitate their processing. Um, what's really interesting though, is that within this group of children with ASD, uh, greater amplitude suppression or a greater difference in the size of that big brain wave we were interested in in response to the multisensory speech versus the auditory-only speech correlated with their clinical symptoms. And correlations with their language ability, especially their ability to understand language, were particularly strong. So what we learned is that children who are having a hard time processing multisensory speech are often the same children who tend to have a hard time with things like understanding language. I really like that take-home point at the end. Can you say it again? <laughs> uh, I don't know what I said. Okay. <laughs> uh, what we learned is that many of the children who are having a hard time processing multisensory speech are the same children who are having a hard time with things like communication and understanding language. I just wanted that recorded for my dissertation defense. <laughs> Jacob, yes. can I add something yes. to this, if I may? So I think... One of the things, the wonderful things about being a part of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center is obviously we've spent our time talking about the research aims and um, and what those were and sort of some of the accomplishments we had with them. But because we work within this um, really fantastic interdisciplinary center, one of the other opportunities that we had wasn't a part of the original experimental design or aims of the grant was to actually not only do the functional MRI that Carissa talked about, but also to do something called structural MRI. Coming back to what we had talked about earlier in terms of, you know, things that people use in a clinical arena for joint pain in your knee. And this is in conjunction with um, Lori Cutting, who was one of the core directors, who her and Bennett Landman have built out a series of tools that have allowed what I, I think we can honestly say is probably some of the most sophisticated structural analyses that have ever been done to date in a group of children with autism. And not only have they developed the tools to do these analyses, but also the data seems to suggest that those children have differences in how thick their cerebral cortex is and also in how folded the cerebral cortex is, something that we call gyrification. So I think, again, the synergies that we gained from being a part of the Kennedy Center we're far beyond the original aims of the grant. And I think it's a really important thing to, to spell out here. Well, thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome.
And the third aim of the original project was to determine whether we could train these multisensory integration abilities in children with autism. Tiffany, can you discuss what we've learned in that regard? Actually, Jacob, I think maybe you should take the lead on discussing this particular aim, since it's been your line of research in your PhD program. Well, that, that is a good point. We're actually about to uh, publish a pilot computerized training study we did with four kids with autism. We haven't yet found evidence that our training works, but we now know that these multisensory skills can be changed. And while we haven't yet developed an effective training, we think that we're learning valuable information about these processes in autism. Fantastic. One thing I actually want to talk about, Jacob, is so can you tell us a bit about how your training as a part of these projects and as a part of the VKC, how has it benefited you as a student and your dissertation research? It has been a unique experience, and I would definitely say that I've benefited tremendously from all of the training opportunities provided by the Kennedy Center. First, I was able to learn about all these methods that we've discussed to date. I might not be proficient enough to tell you in our audience about each one, but I definitely uh, was able to understand everything that our guests have been saying. I've also been able to uh, present at not only at the Kennedy Center Science Day and get feedback from all of our wonderful staff here or faculty here, but also to travel to other conferences and present this work with Kennedy Center support. I've been fortunate to have uh, coursework from other Kennedy Center investigators to learn some of these methods. And I also was fortunate enough to attend a national meeting of uh, directors for intellectual developmental disability research centers to see how the work that we do fits in on the national scale. I've, I truly feel that I am, could not be better prepared for a research career thanks to all the opportunities I've had from the Kennedy Center. Very good. Thank you. I think my last question, as well as the question that's probably on many of our listeners' minds, is how do you think that what we've learned will help individuals with autism and their families? Let's start with you, Tiffany. Well, as a clinician and a parent, I'm really excited about what we've learned from this line of research so far. I think these findings can help us to better understand the nature of sensory and multisensory challenges that children with autism face in their everyday lives. The results have definitely also advanced our understanding of how these sensory disruptions may relate to some of the other differences we see in areas such as social communication and language in children on the spectrum. It's been absolutely fascinating to unveil some of the differences in brain structure and function that underlie sensory alterations to know really where within a child's nervous system these differences may be coming from. What's most exciting to me, however, is your work and we'll have to see um, what the results show. But I'm curious as to whether these sensory differences may really be malleable in at least some children with autism. Um, this is a particularly important line of research to pursue in my opinion. If we know pretty definitively at this point that children with autism display differences in multisensory integration that are linked with both differences in their brains and their broader behavior, the next obvious question is, what can we do about it to best support children with autism and their families? Well, I think that was a very thorough answer and definitely uh, sets up my last question, which is, what are we in this room planning to do next to help us learn more about this topic of sensory integration and sensory processing and autism? 
Well, I'll start. I think it jumps off of Tiffany's answer to the last question, which is really for me, I think it's extremely important to understand the sensory differences in these children, but I think it really, it's incumbent on us as responsible scientists to think about how do we take that information and really use it in a, a remediative and interventional framework. <clears throat> so I think I, I really see our future being largely about taking the knowledge that we've learned about sensory information processing in these children, about the brain networks that support that processing, really taking it more and more in a clinically oriented direction to understand what are the levers that we can pull in terms of sensory processing in children with autism that really will improve and benefit them in the quality of life arena? I think that's ultimately the question we're all, the goal that we all have and the question that we're most interested in. And I think we've really, we've scratched the surface. Um, I think the work that we've done has laid an important foundation, but I think we have a whole lot of work to do in the future moving forward. And I'm just excited to be a part of it and to have a great team to work with to do this work moving forward. I agree with Mark. What I'm most enthusiastic about is really ascertaining how we will eventually translate what we've found in the laboratory to clinical practice. I think there are a number of things that have to be done before that can happen. Um, first, I think we do need to do additional research to determine when differences in multisensory integration are emerging and possibly producing these cascading effects on development. Um, that type of work will allow us to hone in on the developmental period wherein we might best intervene uh, to support children's multisensory development. As we talked about a little bit briefly earlier, we are now prospectively following infants who are known to be at increased risk for ASD in an attempt to ask these types of questions. Uh, second, I think we have to determine exactly how we might best intervene. So as you discussed earlier, we found that computer-based programs may be helpful for targeting multisensory integration in at least maybe older children and adolescents on the autism spectrum, specifically those who probably do have these intact language and cognitive skills. That particular approach seems unlikely to work to me, however, for children who are younger or children who have these comorbid intellectual disabilities or more severe language impairments. So going forward, um, I know I'll personally be working to evaluate whether we can adapt some existing early interventions in ways that might support multisensory processing and integration in the broader range of children with autism. So I can put in a little plug for a, a related but um, distinct line of research. So we um, are currently doing studies in my lab looking at a different kind of multisensory integration. So we think about our five senses as giving us information about the external world. Um, some of the work that we're doing now is kind of looking at the the sensory information that actually is coming from within our own bodies. So um, when you feel your heart racing or your stomach churning, a lot of those signals are really relevant for some of the emotional processing that we know people with autism have uh, challenges with and how best to integrate that with information from the external world is another um, kind of wide open area of research that we're embarking on now. Well, I'm excited to hear what everyone comes up with next time we meet around this table. This was uh, highly informative to me, and we're I'm just so excited about all of the cool work that we're doing and even more excited for the cool work that we're about to do. So thank you all for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And thank you all for listening. Until next time. 
Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.